Shalom again. This is Reverend John Farad, and we're in the Torah study series entitled The Gospel According to Moses on the Book of Exodus. We're in Lesson 46. Hey, we're in Exodus 19. We're going to be studying Exodus 19, and they finally made it. They came to Mount Sinai. We read this in the New American Standard Bible, that translation. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 2. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they came out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. If there ever was an example of how Jesus is seen in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. From John 5.39, Jesus says 2,000 years ago that all Scripture testifies of him. He's saying it to those people 2,000 years ago, and all they had was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the primary books of the Torah. So where is Jesus in the Torah? We're going to see this in Exodus 19. It, it, it's so clear. We're also going to see another goal. How did the Hebrews coming out of Egypt perhaps... Look at some of the things that we're going to actually see in Exodus 19. We have to go back and understand Egypt again. And on top of that, if you're a disciple of Jesus, he's ascended into heaven, you remember all his words, how did this perhaps relate to them then? What did they see? And then, how does that help us understand that the gospel is here and that we can use so many things that we're learning in the Torah. Because Jesus said it. He is testified in the Old Testament. He said that 2,000 years ago and they changed the world with the Torah. So they're here. They're at the mountain of God. And I'm going to go back to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In verse 1 it says that Moses comes to the mountain of God, and then in verse 12 of Exodus 3, God says, bring them to this mountain, which is Mount Sinai, the mountain that they're at. So Mount Sinai is the mountain of God, and they finally made it. God has led his people to his mountain to enter into a covenant, a new covenant, and we're going to be talking about that when we get to chapter 20. What is a covenant? What, what's going on here? But the mountain of God moves later. You can see this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You can see this, and especially Isaiah 66, verse 20. You can see this in Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Joel chapter 3, verse 17. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. And let's read Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 2 as just another example that the mountain of God had moved. Here the mountain of God is Mount Sinai. There's no doubt about it. As we go back to the burning bush in Exodus 3, Moses had brought them to this mountain which is Mount Sinai which is the mountain of God. However it moves, let's take a look at Micah 4 verses 1 through 2. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain of God, the mountain of Yahweh, 
will be established as a chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's quite clear that not only Micah chapter 4, but the other verses has said that the mountain of God has now moved. It's now in Jerusalem. And Jesus offers up a cup the night before he died, the cup of the new covenant at Jerusalem, at the mountain of God a new covenant at the mountain of God, just like we're reading here in Exodus 19. So, interesting connection. The mountain of God, new covenant, for the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. Jesus, last supper, lifts up the cup, offers up a cup of a new covenant at the mountain of God. But there's another connection that for us, many of us, many of us have missed. Now, Jesus rises from the dead on Sunday. That's very clear. It's the first day of the week. It was a Jewish feast. Actually, it was a God's feast. That's what it says. The Feast of Bikarim, the Feast of First Fruits. And in the Torah, it says, starting with that day, the Feast of Bikarim, which is Jesus' resurrection, you will count 49 days. You will count seven Sabbath weeks. And on the 50th day will be Pentecost. So 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, it was Pentecost. And God sent his Holy Spirit with tongues of fire on the 120 disciples of Yeshua. And the 120 spoke in new languages to Jews and Gentiles from all over the world. They heard the gospel in their own language. Thousands, thousands sought ritual immersion, 3,000 to be precise, to proclaim their new faith in Jesus, Messiah, and Lord. All this, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, on God's feast of Shavuot, or Pentecost. So Jesus' resurrection is 50 days before Shavuot, before Pentecost, at the mountain of God. Now, I want you to consider, again, Exodus 19, verse 1. Reading from the New American Standard, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So we read that phrase, on that very day. In Hebrew, the phrase is, Beom Hazeh. Now there's a couple of ways that that could be translated. One way it could be translated is this way. Um, they've come to Mount Sinai in the third month, and who cares what day, the first day, second day, the 15th day, who cares? But on the very day that they come in, Beom Hazay, the following things happened. That's one way of translating it. Another way of translating it, possibly, is this. They've come to Mount Sinai, in the third month, on the first day of the third month, it doesn't say that, but it's a way of looking at it. And on this very day, the first day of the third month, 
that's a possibility. And I don't think it is a likely possibility, but it is possible. Another possible realistic translation of Bayom Haze on that very day is on that very day means the day we're talking about on this very day takes on the number that was just specified, the third month. So in other words, we're talking about the third month or the third day of the third month, that very day, connecting it to the number of the month. Now this is a possibility and I find it fascinating. First, going back, the Hebrews left the next morning after their Passover dinner, their first Passover dinner, they left on the 15th day of Nisan. And again, all these are lunar months. So day 15 is the first day of the journey. Day 15 of the month of Nisan is the first day of the Exodus. So the 16th day of Nisan is day 2 of the Exodus, day 2 of the journey. So 16, day 2. The 17th day of Nisan is actually day 3 of the journey. Now it so happens, scientifically, that we know that the month of Nisan, the biblical month of Nisan, lunar month, is 30 days long. So when they're on the 30th day of Nisan, it's day 16 of the Exodus. Just look at the pattern. 15th day of Nisan, it's day 1 of the journey. The 16th day of Nisan, it's day 2 of the journey. The 17th day of Nisan is day 3 of the journey, and so on and so on and so on, until we get to day 30, and it's day 16 of their journey. Now the next month, next lunar month, is Iyar. Now what's fascinating is this. Iyar, astronomically and scientifically, has been proven to be a 29-day lunar month. 29 days. This is just... God is so precise. So, on the first day of Nisan, if you recall, it was day 16, and it's day 30 of Nisan, it's day 16, so now it's the first day of Iyar. That means it's day 17 of the journey. Second day of Iyar is day 18 of the Exodus. The third day of Iyar is the 19th day so on and so on and so on and we come to the 29th day of er the second lunar month and following the pattern it's pretty clear to see that it's the 45th day of the exodus the 45th day of their journey now they come and now it's to the third month remember the 29th day of er was the 45th day of the journey now it's in the third month. The third month, lunar month, is Sivan. And the first day of Sivan is the 46th day of their journey because the last day of Iyar was the 45th day of their journey. So the next day is the 46th day of the journey. The second day of Sivan is the 47th day. And the third day of Sivan would be the 48th day of the Exodus. However, I talked about that this phrase the very day, Bayom Hazay, can be interpreted validly that they arrived at the mountain of God on the third day of the third month. If that's true, you guys, if that's true, 
they arrived on the 48th day of their journey in the Exodus. Now, in Exodus 19, verse 10, God gives some very specific instructions. He says, The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today. What's the day? Uh, it's the 48th day since they left Egypt. Consecrate them today and tomorrow, which would be the 49th day of the Exodus, and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for on the third day the third day first day is today the second day is tomorrow and then the third day is the 50th day of their exodus of their journey the 50th day since they left and on that day that's chapter 20 they received the Ten Commandments on day 50 since they left. They received God's new covenant on day 50. Do you see it? Do you see this amazing connection? There's a new covenant at Jerusalem, and it's 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And this new covenant is given at the mountain of God on Shavuot or Pentecost. However, we're dealing with the new covenant for the Hebrews at Sinai. And it's likely that it's 50 days after the first Passover. Interesting. We have 50 days from the resurrection, 50 days from the rising of Jesus, so that all of us, and it's proven that what he came for to give us new life and freedom. And now we have also 50 days from Passover, and Israel is now at the mountain of God to receive a new life and freedom as a new nation. Two amazing events. God seems to be connecting them. Not the rabbis. The rabbis didn't see this. I have seen no rabbinical Jewish comment regarding what I just went through that this is the 50th day. They do it from a different perspective? Or any scholars, I have no Christian scholars that have done this except one or two. So if indeed the Hebrews arrived at the third day of the third month, the Bible seems to be absolutely clear and precise. Just imagine, we need to have ER to be a 29-day lunar month. We have learned that now with modern astronomy and modern science. God is so amazingly precise. That's why I think they arrived on the third day of the third month. God seems to be saying that his first new covenant at Sinai, that God calls us Ten Commandments. You can read this. It's in Exodus 34, verse 28. God says his Ten Commandments is a new covenant. And this is all intimately connected to his second new covenant at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is the mountain of God, nearly 1,500 years later. Huh. Now, does Paul see it? Did, does he understand it this way? He never says it. Remember his words. This is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 4. The Torah was given to lead us to Christ. 
does Paul see the connection between Sinai and Jerusalem? God is going to be giving his Torah. He's going to start it there at Sinai, and it's all pointing to Jesus? Is Paul seeing the connection between Sinai and Jerusalem like we're seeing it right now? Years later, many years later after Jesus' ascension, way after 70 AD, the Jewish rabbis conclude that the Ten Commandments were given on Shavuot or Pentecost. Now, they arrive at this conclusion in a variety of different ways. One of the ways they arrive at it is, remember I told you that Bayom Chazay could be interpreted that the Hebrews arrived on the first day of the third month, and on that very day, on the first day of the, uh, of the uh, third month, all these things happen. And based upon that and counting, they come to the date of Shavuot or Pentecost in the month of Sivan, the way it's celebrated today. The problem is, the rabbis add in a lot of other stuff that's not in the Bible. Again, it's the concept of Midrash, and they're telling, they're putting the, they're putting words in the Bible's mouth, and what they're doing is making conclusions based upon their opinions and views. Now, in a sense, you might say, wait a minute, John, aren't you doing that too? Well, yeah, however, we're looking at a very realistic way of interpreting the very day as it's related to the third month, and I'm not adding anything else in there. I think when we look at the fact, scientifically, with regards to lunar months, counting Day number one, which is Nissan 15, the way we went through that count, it's a more realistic way of looking at this. Now, this happens years and years after Jesus' day. Shavuot or Pentecost takes on a new meaning. However, in Jesus' day, Jewish scholarship teaches us that Shavuot or Pentecost was not in remembrance of the giving of the Ten Commandments. The rabbis didn't get this until perhaps the 9th century A.D. Let me read for you from a Jewish website called the Torah.com and their statement is, when Shavuot figures in our prayers, we call it the time our Torah was given, a phrase of which the earliest record we have is the Seder Ram Amram, a 9th century Geon of Surah. The gift of Torah is certainly an occasion for joy and celebration, but the Torah never calls the festival, meaning Shavuot or Pentecost, the Torah never calls the festival by this name nor anything like it. Even in the Mishnah, and that is the book of the law that the rabbis wrote after the temple was destroyed, the Mishnah doesn't even connect Shavuot with Torah. You can also find this in the Encyclopedia Judaica. You can also find this in the book by Chaim Shaus. He's a proven Orthodox Jewish scholar in his book called The Jewish Festivals. But... Regardless, 
it seems like God was already making the connection. The rabbis missed it. And so did we. He's making this connection in, in Exodus 19. His first new covenant, we're going to see that it's the Ten Commandments, was meant for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. We're going to see aspects of when we start studying the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments were meant for all people for the entire world. And how this is connected to the second new covenant, also meant for the whole world, as we read in John 3.16, where it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We see this again in Paul's words. That's why I say, did, did Paul see this? Paul teaches in Romans 10, verse 4, that the purpose of Torah, the goal of Torah, the result of Torah is Jesus. Now you read it in the New American Standard or other versions that Jesus is the end of Torah, and I, or the end of the law. And I don't know how many sermons I've heard about this, where say, see, Jesus throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is null and void. All we have is the New Testament. What? There's no way. Paul would never have taught that. There are so many other verses where Paul is honoring the Torah. But when we actually go into the Greek, it really means the purpose of Torah is Jesus. And all of a sudden, the giving of the Ten Commandments for us as disciples of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, takes on a whole new importance. So it seems to make sense that the Hebrews likely arrived on the third day of the third month. We cannot prove it. However, Be'om Chazeh, this very day, is a valid alternative translation or a translation that gives us meaning that they arrived on the third day of the third month. It's about how Passover and Pentecost are connected from Moses to Messiah, from the Ten Commandments to Jesus. Are we surprised? Doesn't surprise us in the least. We continue to read in Exodus 19. We left off uh, at verse 3. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall, you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now the rabbis have a very interesting view on verse 3. 
where it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. And they're saying, Why are you going to say something to the house of Jacob, and tell something to the sons of Israel? Aren't they the same? Are, are we... <laughs> Is something going on here that God is differentiating between the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel? It doesn't make sense. God does not tell us. But the rabbis make up a midrash because they saw that God seems to be implying that the house of Jacob and the sons and the sons of Israel are two different groups. Now the Bible does not say that. But here's the rabbis looking at this, and they're making up their own meaning here. They're coming up and they're teaching their own opinion as if their own opinion was fact and truth. Now, I think their opinion is very interesting, but the Bible doesn't say that. So for me, I come to these rabbis and said, who are you? Who gave you the authority to put the words, put your own words, your own opinions, your own views as the meaning to unanswered questions in the Bible? I, I have no problem when somebody might say, hey, listen, I have an opinion. Uh, I have a view on this. I have some thoughts. Um, and it's only my opinion. Matter of fact, I'm dealing with that right now on Facebook. Uh, happened to be uh, in an interesting discussion, somebody asked me uh, a certain question. I said, here's my view, here's my opinion, but I can't base it on anything. This is just some thoughts that I have. And so we banter back and forth in a very good way. And so I don't mind if rabbis would say, maybe this is what this is going on. Maybe there's a possibility here, but they don't do it that way. You're going to see this in just a second. They teach it if it's truth. But their midrash that they're doing here for verse 3 about the house of Jacob and the sons of, of Israel, this midrash shows a very interesting Jewish point of view on the Ten Commandments. And it could be that the rabbis don't even realize that their view actually strengthen some things that we're going to be taking a look at so take a look at, we're going to take a look at their midrash on verse three so i'm reading from the chumash which is the orthodox jewish commentary on the torah the word amar which has been translated as say implies a mild form of speech amar which is Strong's number H559, basically means to say, uh, to, to um, bring up, with no, it, it doesn't seem to be a firm way of, like a command or, you know, an, an order, but to say. So when Moses spoke to the house of Jacob, now here's what the rabbis say, now the way they write it, when Moses sp speaks to the house of Jacob, He's referring to the women. You see what I'm saying? Their opinion is that the house of Jacob means all the women of Israel. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that. And why didn't the rabbi say, what if 
the house of Jacob is women because the words because of the word amar he was to express the commandments in a manner suited to their compassion compassionate and maternal nature women set the tone of the home and they are the ones responsible to inculcate love of torah in their children a task to which their loving nature is best suited because of this role a mother could pray when she kindles her sabbath candles that in the merit of Sabbath flames, her children should merit the illumination of the Torah, which is also likened to flames. However, the word, and let me see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, ve'takid means to relate, and it has uh, an implied firmness or harshness, and they're relating or they're telling the sons of Israel or the children of Israel, which means that refers to the men. He was to teach the commandments in a firm manner, meaning the men. So what's interesting, and I wanted to thank Dennis Prager for this insight, because he brought this up, and again, Dennis Prager has been just a phenomenal resource in helping me understand the Hebrew and also understanding the rabbinical point of view. And here, what the rabbis are saying is the house of Jacob is like the women, and the children of Israel, or the sons of Israel, is for the men. Now, what's interesting is what the rabbis are saying is the new covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, is for all Israel. It's for the men and the women alike. And later on, we're going to see that the Jewish understanding, the Jewish understanding is that the Torah, Ten Commandments and the Torah, the rest of the Torah is for the entire world. And that's a Jewish understanding which translates into the Christian understanding. God so loved the whole world. So it's very interesting that their Midrash, the Jewish rabbinical, Orthodox Jewish rabbinical point of view, gives us an insight that uh, is very, very intriguing. We're going to see more of that. So thank you, Dennis Prager, for your insights and for pointing that out. Now, in verse 4 of 19, we read that I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, the great Rabbi Rashi, which is Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhak, he was alive uh, in the Middle Ages, 1040 to 1105 A.D., he makes an awesome comment on this verse. And his comment is captured here in the Chumash. And again, I wanted to thank Dennis Breaker for bringing this up, but we're going to have to go into some science on this. And Rashi, his comment on eagle's wings, he says this, this is an indication of God's great love for Israel. An eagle carry its, it carries its young on its back so that its own body will act as a shield against arrows. So too God protected Israel from the Egyptian assault at the sea by moving his cloud between the Egyptians and the Jews. This was followed by the phrase, I brought you to me, to my service. Now Rashi's making a big mistake and he's saying 
the eagles carry their young on their back to protect them from arrows. So eagles know about hunters and arrows? Um, that's a very interesting statement. So that doesn't make any sense. However, his comments about eagles carrying their young on their back is a, is his comments contradicts reality, contradicts nature. I've heard this from many Jews and Christians who believe that eagles carry their young and protect them. The problem is it's not true. It's likely not true from just talking to naturalists who study the lives of eagles. Now the Hebrew word there that was translated as eagle, the Hebrew word is nesher. The Strong's number is H5404. It could be an eagle, but it could be a gigantic, awesome vulture, common in Sinai and Egypt with an eight-foot wingspan. Let's consider from an amazing resource on the Old Testament which deals with archaeology, it deals with science, it, it, it puts the Bible in its historical perspective. And that's the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary of the Old Testament. If you don't have this, you have got to get it. The InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary on the Old Testament. So, here's the statement on chapter 19, verse 4. Though the eagle cannot be ruled out, the bird named here is more usually taken to be the griffin vulture with a wingspan of 8 to 10 feet. While Bible reference books often report how the eagle carries its young on its wings when they grow weary of flying, or catches them on their wings, then they are flut, uh, fluttering in failure. See that, you can take a look at that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. This behavior has been difficult for naturalists to confirm through observation. In fact, most eagles and vultures do not take their first flight until they are three or four months old, at which time they are nearly full grown. Furthermore, observations by naturalists have consistently confirmed the, f the first flight is usually taken while the parents are away from the nest. Alternatively, if the metaphor here concerns a vulture, the griffin vulture, this might be a polemic. In other words, God is using this picture to come against Egypt. In Egypt, there was a goddess, and her name was Nechbet, and she was pictured as a vulture. She represented Upper Egypt, and she served in during the times of the Exodus. So we're talking 1446 BC in the 18th dynasty. As the protector of Pharaoh, his family, and all of Egypt. So we now have real naturalist opinion and real historical opinion about ancient Egypt that makes a lot more sense and relates to the Hebrews. For the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, they had assimilated into the pagan Egyptian culture. We talked about this in the first one, two, or three lessons here in the Gospel according to Moses and Exodus. 
So this fits. It, it makes sense. If this is Nekbet, she's pictured as this awesome bird of prey, this winged vulture goddess, pictured as the goddess. And it's during the time of the Exodus that she protects Pharaoh, his the royal family, and all of Egypt. It would make sense that God is using a polemic again. He's using the vulture against the gods of Egypt. Using the a polemic, a statement, attacking another point of view. Attacking the beliefs and practices of his people picked up after 430 years in Egypt. It's not Nechbet that protects. It's Yahweh that protects. He's the Lord. He is the great winged, awesome bird protecting all Israel. And protecting all of us. God does not change. Re read this in Psalm 91, verse 4. He covers us with his wings. Maybe David got this and understood this. Now there's a second aspect of this verse, verse 4, that helps us understand the purpose of Exodus. Let me go do it again, or through it again. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And again, I'm going to thank Dennis Prager for his comments. Uh, they just opened my eyes. And here is this deeply religious Jewish scholar who is also thirsting to understand the Torah as, as being rational, as being intelligent, as, as being given by an intelligent being for all of us, not only then, 3,400 years ago, but today. And Dennis is talking about the fact when we read this verse, we find that the purpose of Exodus is not about freedom. The purpose of the Exodus is not the, the, the escape of the Hebrews from slavery. It's pretty awesome. Matter of fact, we're going to take a look at Dennis Prager's comments here from his book called Exodus, the Rational Bible, his commentary on the Torah. So he says, God says he brought the people to me, not as one might suppose, out of Egypt or out of bondage. The reason is the primary purpose of the Exodus was more than rescuing a people from bondage. It was to bring the Israelites to God and his moral law. I like to say yada, that they would come to know God. They would have an experiential relationship with God. They would have a relationship with him, yes, and in his moral law. Prigger goes on to say this is in line with God's repeated instruction to Moses to tell Pharaoh let my people go so that they may worship me. Now, the actual word worship appears nowhere in the Bible. It's an old English word that appears in the Bible in the King James Version. And worship, when you actually go back to the ancient uh, the Hebrew, that word worship will be used uh, really in, in ways that you would say, wait a minute, this does not make sense. F worship is used for the Hebrew word avad. And the H and the Strong's number is H fifty six forty seven, meaning to serve or to work. And the translator said, "Avad to serve to work for the Lord to obey the Lord is worship." However, it also translates the Hebrew word shacha, which is the Strong's number 
H7812, which is to bow down, to prostrate oneself. And so that's the uh, idea of worship. It's really fascinating how the translators or what the translators have done. Get the ray, get the the word worship out of there, and to really get to the original Hebrew. They're the, the purpose of the Exodus is that he wants a people to come and be in relationship to him, to serve him, to love him, and to walk with him. God is creating a nation to go, to be a light of the world, to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. We read this in Isaiah 42.6. This is about Israel. In Isaiah 42.6, we read, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. We go to Isaiah 49.6, and we read, He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, a light of, a light of the world. Have, Jesus said that. So that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, the English word salvation comes from a very interesting Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is Yeshua, which is Jesus' name. God is showing his love for Israel. He's showing his love for all of us. We read that in John 3.16, God so loved the world. It's all pointing to Messiah, to Yeshua, Jesus, so that all people will see their option of choosing Jesus as Lord because God, God has come to open up the way back to himself through the cross. And in Jesus we're saved and be able to come home to the Father for the way is open. Now there is a specialness here. A specialness about this new nation. We read about it in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 8. Now then, if you will indeed obey, be, uh, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel specialness of his people. Now, the you in there, studying the Hebrew, is second person plural. It's not first person. So in other words, the you in Hebrew means all of Israel. You all is another way of saying it. They all will be that special possession. A, na a nation of priests, a holy, a holy nation. Kadosh being set aside, separated, we say holy. And what do priests do? Look up any definition. Priests are media, mediation agents between God and man. In all religions, they are a way of bringing the common man, the common woman, to God. All, all Israel, all, 
Every one of them, men and women, young and old, are priests. They're chosen by God, God's elect, to go into all the world as we just read, to be a light to the world, to the light to the nations, to bring God's salvation, God's Jesus, Yeshua, to the ends of the earth. But this takes us all the way to the mountain of God in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to ascend to the Father and he tells his disciples who serve him as their rabbi, who are his chosen, his elect, that they will go as a light to the world. He called them in, in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. And they're to go into all the world to testify of him, to testify of Yeshua, to testify of salvation, God's salvation, to the ends of the earth. This is in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. So Israel, Israel has a seemingly awesome position in God's eyes. An awesome position. And on top of that, so do we. Now in verse 5, it talks about being a special possession. The actual Hebrew there is segula. And the Strong's number is H5459. And segula means a very peculiar treasure. It means a valued possession, a very special, valuable treasure. Israel is God's elect, his chosen people. That's disturbing to a lot of people. You've heard perhaps of replacement theology. And there are people who use the Bible to show that Israel is not God's chosen people, that only Christians are? We need to take a look at this because God never changes. He says that Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord and I do not change. So right now, we're in our 46th minute and we're going to hold off on exploring this idea of Israel as God's chosen people We'll take a look at that in part two. Until then, shalom.